Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. I want to talk about Elul, but not just Elul as a month or as a spiritual idea, but Elul as a necessity. I really think that you can't understand Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur or the whole period that we're about to go on to unless you understand what is going on in Elul. And if I were to sort of like walk up to the average person on the street who knows a thing or two, and I, and I ask them, what is, what is Elul about? And for those of you who don't know, Elul, it's the Hebrew month on the, on the Jewish calendar that precedes Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And everybody knows that Rosh Hashanah is not just the new year, it's the new universe. So in other words, we're actually in the process of creating something right now. And as I've told you in earlier times, it's very much in the kind of the imagery of conceiving the new year. So with that in mind, I want to tell you just a story that happened to me this week. I was in shul and they were calling people up for the Torah and they called him up by the name Tzvi Elimelech. And Tzvi Elimelech, I, I know to be the name of the Bnei Yisachar. That's a source that I often mentioned. He goes through the months of the year and he tells you on a Torah level, like what are the energies of the different months? It's a classic work of Hasidus. So after the Aliyah, I asked him, I said, are you a descendant of the Bnei Yisachar, right? Who had that name? And he said to me, no. And then he said, but I was named after him. And I said, oh, okay. So it turns out he actually has an illustrious lineage. But after Davani, he came up to me and he said to me, can I share a thought with you from the Bnei Yisachar about Elul? And I said, please. And this is what he told me. So this is just a, a new idea in Elul. And I'm also introducing a new methodology right now. It was new to me. But this is, again, within the B'nai Yisachar. So this is a classic Torah approach to understanding the months in a new way. Okay. Now, we know we have different divine names. All of them are talking about Hashem. There's only one God. But they'll have different names to describe how God manifests himself in the world. So, for instance, just to make it very grounded and clear, all of us are known by different names. So I'll use myself as an example. I'm daddy to my kids. I, I don't have grandkids right now, but God willing, I will one day, and I, I imagine I'll be grandpa to my grandkids. So that's already two different names. You know, on a, on a good day, I'm sweetheart to my wife, right? When I cut someone off in traffic, I'm hey you, <laughs> right? But to my, to my son's young friends, I'm Mr. Sachs. So we're all, we're describing, and, and I'll tell you something, when I was young, my, my grandmother, my mother's mother said to me very seriously, she was so serious when she said this, I never forgot it. She said to me, your name is David. Don't have anyone call you Dave. And you know, like as a kid, I was like almost like traumatized by that. It's like anyone who ever called me Dave, I was like, it's David, you know? So anyway, so that is, that's, those are all different names for me. And again, it's how I'm manifesting myself that will dictate the name, even though it's just me. So if I'm manifesting myself in an incredibly obnoxious way, it's hey you. You understand? If, it's, if I'm manifesting myself in a loving way, sweetheart. So, so you, have, you have this idea applied on a you know, much more divine higher level with Hashem. When Hashem manifests himself through what we call midas hadin, which means in a, in, a, in a way of justice, meaning to say God is sort of like reinforcing the, the moral structure of the universe, then we use the name Elohim, right? So that's, that, 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 that's a very strong name. When God manifests himself in a, in a loving way, we say Hashem or Adonai, Yud Vavke, right? That's how that would be pronounced. Although that's not the true pronunciation of that name. The, the true pronunciation of that name, we don't have anymore. 
Okay, but that's, that's how we say it. And even that we're guarded about, even though that's not actually how you pronounce that name. Okay. So to go even deeper, God's holiest name is that name which suggests love. Isn't that something? You know, there's a, a slander among other traditions against the Jewish people that talks about, quote-unquote, the vengeful God of the Old Testament. This is mamish slander against the Jewish people because the holiest name of God indicates love. So, so I heard Rabbi David Aaron challenge people to read the most sort of like, quote-unquote, vengeance-oriented passages but where it says God's name, actually read the word love and see actually how, how they come out. Isn't that interesting? Like you'll get a completely different understanding. So anyway, why am I telling you all this? Because I want to go back to this methodology regarding Elul, Elul that the Tzvi, the Tzvi Elimelech of Dinam, the, the Holy B'nai Asaskar, says over. So there's another name of God, also pronounced Adonai, but it's actually spelled Aleph Dalid Nun Yud. And this name actually is in modern Hebrew, and it's a term of respect, but it's pronounced Adoni. But it's the same letters. Adoni means master. And in the divine context, what it's referring to is God as master within borders, meaning to say God runs the entire world because the world is an expression of the finite amidst his infinity. So there are boundaries, but within the boundaries itself, God is also running the world. So, so that, that is this name, Aleph Dalad Nudin Yud. So, if you want to juxtapose it with the Yudke Vavke name, you would have simply put God of heaven, God of earth. That's what these two names would indicate in the shorthand. Okay? Now, interestingly, I'll just make a slight digression here just because we're, we've done all the homework for this slide. That adds up to 91. Those two divine names, Yudke Vavke and Aleph Dalad Nun and Yud, add up to 91. And 91 is a very, very important number in, in Jewish thought because whenever you see 91 or a word that adds up to 91, what it's doing basically is, is summoning this very macro concept of God's powers beyond borders and within borders. Heaven and earth, if you will. Okay. So now why am I telling you that? Because I've seen now in two exceptionally holy places the same gematria and applying to the word machel. Machel is spelled mem and the Noam Elimelech and Rav Yitzhak Isaac Chaver from two very separate sources of learning, two very separate sides of, of holy Jewish learning both bring this gematria as something that someone should have in mind when they eat. So again, the Noam Elimelech says that when a person eats, remember this adds up to 91, which means heaven and earth. One should see these letters before themselves when they eat. Mem, Aleph, Chaf, and Lamed. And it's really deep. It's really deep. It's really, really deep because it's not just that you're receiving sustenance from above to below, from heaven to earth when you're eating. That's certainly one level of it. But another level of it is that God is nourishing your soul, which is now nourishing your body. This food is nourishing your soul, which is nourishing your body. So your soul would really correlate with a higher divine name, Yudke Vavke, and your body, which is more earthbound. Remember the word for a person, Adam, 
is the same word as Adama, which means earth, since we were sort of formed from the earth. So our body, so to speak, is the earth. Our souls, so to speak, is a piece of heaven, which is another expression, by the way, of the idea that each person is a microcosm of the universe because your body is earth and your soul is heaven. So each person is a fractal, basically, of heaven and earth together. It's really awesome. And so that, this, this, this number 91 you have in mind when eating, these, this God master beyond borders, God master within borders, the body and the soul both coming together in terms of nourishment, coming together in the joint purpose of serving God. The idea is that eating can be an alienating experience. How so? Because could be my body is just lusting for food and my soul is like, what are you doing? You're burying me. You're burying me with this food. You're burying me with materiality. Or the body and the soul can be best friends. The body and the, body and the soul need each other. Remember, the soul wants to do mitzvahs, and it needs the body in order to perform the mitzvahs. If the body is just laying there like a lump of clay, then the soul can't give tzedakah, then the soul can't light Shabbos candles, and the, rather than the, right, right, unless the body participates. So the soul needs the body. The body also needs the soul, because Without the soul, the body is a, a lifeless lump. So the idea is that the body and the soul can be enemies or the body and the soul can be best friends and fully integrated with each other. And the idea is that we want the body and the soul to be best friends and to be fully integrated with each other. So that would be one kavana, one level of what a person can have in mind when they're eating and they're imagining these letters, Mem, Aleph, Chaf, and Lamed in front of them. Machum means to eat, which is 91, which is the idea of heaven and earth, body and soul coming together. Meaning to say that the food that I'm eating right now is uniting me in divine service, right? My body is now gonna be stronger to do the work of God and now my soul is happy right? And they're, they're, they, they have the same game plan. If you can eat, if you can sleep, if you can do all of these things where the body and the soul are united in the same purpose, then you bring a level of coherence and clarity to your life and to your tefillahs, because now your tefillahs are really strong, because now you are like a laser-like being. You're not just this scattered bit of energy. You're this focused beam of energy. Since I mentioned sleeping, let me tell you something that I think is a very important kavana for a person to have. You know, after you say Shema and all the rest, and you put your head down on your pillow and the lights are out, and it's time to go to sleep. It's the end of the day. Whatever you've done or you haven't done, this is it, it's going to sleep time. Now you can have one of two things in mind at this point. If you don't have anything in mind, there's a good chance you have the following in mind, <laughs> okay? You have to actively have what I'm about to suggest you in mind in order to have that in mind. Otherwise you have what I'm about to tell you in mind, even if you don't have it in mind. You're, you're subconsciously thinking it, which is that Okay, I put in my day, now I finally get to check out. It's been a long, hard day, and now I'm clocking out, God. <laughs> right? Did my time from early morning to late at night. Now I get to rest. So long, God. See you in the morning. That, I think, is what almost everyone has in mind, even if they don't articulate it. Now let me suggest to you something that's quantumly, quantumly higher. 
and, and easy to do, by the way, which is it's the same moment, it's the end of the day, your head's on the pillow, you're about to close your eyes, your eyes might already be closed at this point. All good. You say, God, please let me sleep in order to serve you. Please, God, let me sleep in order to serve you, that I should have strength to serve you in the morning. I'm telling you that's a major idea. And, and depending on the person, not necessarily hard to do. If you're predisposed toward that anyway, it's definitely not hard to do. You just have to remember to do it. Let me tell you why I personally think that's a major idea. Because you are communicating to God that, that your, your heavenly service, your avoda, is 24 hours. And that you're not leaving God when you go to sleep and sort of very subtly saying, now I'm reclaiming my own life, God, which belongs to me. So that's why I think potentially it has a tremendous amount of power as a, as a statement. And again, I'm bringing it up because it's another expression of body and soul being united in terms of heavenly service. And the idea is, it says that we should serve God in all of our ways. In all of our ways. To know God in all of our ways. And so this same idea can be applied to absolutely everything. But certainly eating and sleeping are, in many ways, the most physical things that we do. So, so that's times when the body and soul can separate. So it's important to, to have this idea in mind, particularly at those times. Okay. Well, let's get back to the B'nai Yisachar and this divine name in Elul. So all of this was really to introduce this name, Aleph Dalud Nun in Yud. Sometimes it's pronounced Adnus. You, you hear that sometimes in, in, in talks. But again, it really stands for the sphera of Malchus, this dimension that we live in, and that God is the master of this dimension as well. Okay, very good. Now, the Meneas Oscar says the following. If you actually spell out the entire word, including all the letters of each of the letters, by what I mean by that is Aleph is not just the letter Aleph. Aleph is a word for the letter Aleph. Meaning to say you can actually spell Aleph. The way you spell Aleph is not just with the letter Aleph. That is the letter Aleph, but it's not how you spell the letter Aleph. The way you would spell the letter Aleph is Aleph Lamed Fet. Okay? Now, the Rishonah Rebbe has a beautiful Torah on that, which is that the gematria of Aleph Lamed Fet, of the word Aleph, is 111. Which is fascinating, because Aleph is the number one, and if you actually spell out the word, the number is 111. <laughs> Again, just another of the trillions of examples of the divinity of Torah. Remember, the whole world was created with the Hebrew letters. And as Reb Shlomo said so beautifully one time, that when the wind blows through the trees, the rustling of the leaves, that sound is in Hebrew, right? Just so the, 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 the language of nature, the language of the universe is Hebrew. That's why it's called Lashon HaKodesh, the holy tongue. So the letter Aleph is spelled Aleph Lamed Fei, and the next letter in that divine name of Adnus, Aleph, Dalet, Nun, and Yud, is Dalet. Now, if you spell Dalet out, it's Dalid, Lamid, Tuf. Okay? So, if you go on to spell out the rest of that divine name, each of the letters, you will get 12 letters. The Meneus Oscar says, ah, that correlates with the 12 months of the year. So now let's assign each one of the letters to each one of the months of the year. So since the first month of the year where we got the divine command to make a calendar was when we left Egypt, so that's the month of Nisan. So that's the first month of the year, so that would be Aleph. 
Iyar is the second month of the year. That would be Lamed. Sivan is the third month of the year. That would be Fei. Then you have, then you have Tammuz and Av. That would be Dalid and Lamed, right? Because now we're, gonna, we're up to the next letter. We're spelling out the letter Dalid. Now listen to this. Everybody knows that Tammuz and Av are maybe the most challenging months of the Hebrew year. That's when we have the famous three weeks leading up to the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash, both Beis HaMikdash's holy temples in Jerusalem and all the calamities, the Spanish Inquisition, the Holocaust, all the things that, that really start on Tisha B'Av throughout Jewish history. That's, that's in Av, and it starts in Tammuz. So the letters spelling Tammuz and Av are Dal. Dal means like poor, right? So, so you see that that's very appropriate. But now, here's the end of the teaching. This is why I'm telling you this. How does this apply to, to Elul? Because Elul, now you add the letter Taf, because that's the finishing of the spelling of the letter Dalit. And so that means door. Meaning to say that Elul is an opening, a door into the next world. The next world that has yet to be created. So that's the first bit of information that I want to give you about Elul. We're on this precipice, and there's nothing on the other side. <laughs> it's just oblivion on the other side. It's not there yet. We're creating it right now. It's exciting. It's exciting. It's exciting. What is the new universe that's about to come into creation going to look like? God is going to tailor-make the next year in order to fit our individual level, to help us get to the next level, including the challenges that we'll need in order to get to the next level. The chesed, the kindness, and the opportunities that we're going to need and also the little kind of pokes we're going to need in order to get to the next level. It's going to be custom made for us based on where we are at at the end of the prayers on Elul, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Hoshana Rabbah, right? We want to try to get it right by Rosh Hashanah, but then we have this extra, extra, you know, set of opportunities, especially Yom Kippur, where the world really comes into being. It comes into sharper focus, let's say, on Hoshana Rabbah. But really, for all intents and purposes, in terms of how we should look at our own marching orders, by Yom Kippur, that's more or less the world. If you want to think of it another way, Rosh Chodesh Elul, the beginning of Elul, is the time of conception, where conception begins. For those of you who heard, I, I mentioned to you something very intense, but you'll see how everything I'm about to say fits together in terms of the opening of the door. There's another way, completely different way, to learn out what the letter of Elul is. And what I'm about to tell you right now is, is the standard way. Okay, it's, it's the letter Yud, which is, the rabbis compared to like many things, by the way, but one of the many things that the letter Yud is compared to is like the male seed, Zera, the, the male reproductive seed, right? That's like, that drop is, is the letter Yud. Interestingly, the mazel of Elul is the basula, the virgin. So... Let's put all these things together. You have conception there. You have the whole imagery of conception right now. You have the male seed and you have the woman in Elul. And what's about to take place? The new universe is about to be born. 
And now what did I just tell you from the B'nai Yisachar? That Elul is an open door. In other words, that's like, that's the birthing process. The door is now open in Elul, that whatever is conceived in Elul, the door is now open for it to enter into the universe and to become the universe. Not only that, but each person is a universe. So not only are you giving birth to the universe, you're giving birth to yourself. It's awesome. It's awesome what's going on right now. So I began the talk by telling you about the necessity of Elul. It's not just that, it's not just what most people think that, okay, Rosh Hashanah is coming up, got to get a lot more mitzvahs in, in order to get a good judgment for the year. I want to address it from a very different perspective right now. You see, Rosh Hashanah has a very scary name attached to it. Yom Hadin, which, which is, we would translate as Judgment Day, which is only slightly terrifying, right? So a person can go into Rosh Hashanah in a very, very fearful way. Unless they've got a greater context. And what I want to give to you right now is the greater context in order to properly understand what this journey we're on is about and what is actually taking place around us. We need the context. It's not just that all of a sudden the principal like kicks open the door of the classroom and says, all right, line up. Now you're going to get your grades. And here's a test. And you're like, what? Like, that's a very aggressive bit of imagery. And a lot of people experience Rosh Hashanah as sort of almost like, emotionally speaking, as an act of aggression. You know, like, what's, what is going on? Like, God, like, I was, you know, it's like, do you, do you really need to, like, make some sort of pronouncement right now? Like, why don't we just take it a day at a time? So what I'm about to tell you right now is designed to counteract these emotions, which I think if a person really learns the sources, that they'll realize are misplaced. So what is the proper way to view it? And again, this is what I mean when I'm telling you that Elul is not just a time to accumulate mitzvahs going into the new year. Elul is a reassessment of our relationship with God. And now, here's really the point. Now, most of you are familiar with this idea, but I don't know that you've integrated the teaching I'm about to share with you into the context that hopefully we've established. And that's the following. Elul stands for Ani Lododi Vedodi Li, which is I am my beloved's and my beloved's is mine. Which means that before we walk into Rosh Hashanah, we have to know who is the one who's judging us. The one who's judging us is the one who loves us the most. And so this month is about reawakening that love affair between us and God. That's what it means, that that's Elul. And that's why I'm telling you that Elul, properly experienced, is a necessity. Because unless you have the context of what Rosh Hashanah is in light of Elul, you'll completely misunderstand everything. Because again, what is God doing on Rosh Hashanah with us? He wants to take us to the next level. And he wants to work with us and do it in the most loving way. Let me, let me give you an example. If you go to the gym, 
and you get to the point where you can now lift, you know, a hundred pound weight. And that was a real goal for you, to be able to lift a hundred pounds. And you got to that point, you lifted a hundred pounds. Now you accomplished something that you really worked toward. The next time you go to the gym, do you go, okay, great, and lift 95 pounds? Or 80 pounds? Does anybody do that? Nobody does it. Because you say, wow, I got to 100 pounds, I did it. Okay, now I'm ready for 105 pounds. Now I'm gonna start toward that. Do you understand? Then that, that should be completely straightforward. Well, why would it be any less in terms of God developing our own souls? In other words, we're hardwired, or perhaps it's just American society. I don't know. But for whatever reason, we're, we're hardwired to think that I did my mitzvah, now God leave me alone. But this entire world is a staging ground between a love relationship between us and God. I keep on thinking of this imagery because somehow it speaks to me. I don't know if it will resonate with you. But I, I think, and I'm talking about sincere religious people, so many people viewed performing mitzvot as paying taxes. It's sort of like, I paid my taxes, God, now leave me alone. As opposed to the idea that we're in this ongoing conversation with God, this ongoing relationship with God, where we're giving and receiving constantly. The problem is, is that we, we, you know, like I like to say, our prayers are being constantly answered. We're just not praying them. And I'll give you a few examples of what I mean by that. When a person wakes up in the morning, say here in Los Angeles, and you walk to your car, your prayer was just answered. What was your prayer? Please, God, may my car not be stolen in the middle of the night. The problem is you didn't pray the prayer, but your prayer was answered anyway. You get into the car and you turn the ignition and the engine starts. Your prayer was just answered. What was your prayer? Please, God, I don't want to sit here for a half an hour waiting for AAA. Except you didn't pray it, but your prayer was answered. Our prayers are constantly being answered, for the most part. We're just not praying these prayers. And so we have a deluded understanding of what our relationship and the level, the highly integrated constant feedback that we're getting from God. Because we focus on one thing, and if we don't get that one thing, we determine that God is completely ignoring us. How, how, how can that be? How can that be that so many of us think that? And I think that is 99% of us. When we open up our eyes in the morning, as Rabbi Shimon Green once said, you open up your eyes in the morning, you win. You won. You just won. You just won at that moment. But somehow, somehow, even, and I'm talking about people who even say modani, right, to thank God for another day. For the most part, it's, it's kind of by rote. It doesn't sink in. And we just kind of think, well, another day. Like the idea that God just miraculously intervened and brought me back from the dead. <laughs> Which is what happened, by the way. That's what happened. I'll tell you something intense. This is my thought, but, you know, ideally you have a washing cup. When you wake up in the morning, you have to wash your hands. You know, you have a washing cup and you alternate on hands three times on each. Ideally, you have that, 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 cup of, that, that, that cup of water with a basin next to your bed so that you don't walk, you know, 10 feet without, without having already washed your hands. If you, if you can't do that, you can do it by the sink, but that's, 
you know, the, the better way to do it is to have it prepared by your nightstand. But everybody knows, you know, we shouldn't know from it, but when, when a person leaves a cemetery, you wash your hands. That, in that ritual way, that's, that's what you do. There's no blessing, by the way. So it hit me, you know, a large part of our soul goes up while we're sleeping. When we wake up, we have been brought back from the dead. And why are you washing your hands? Because when you leave your bed, you're leaving a cemetery. That's intense, right? But I think I might be the first who have ever said the following words, but leaving a cemetery in a good way. <laughs> but again, I'm, 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 I'm taking time to emphasize this point because, because we're constantly receiving, sometimes at a highly dramatic level, highly dramatic. By the way, the, the Gomorrah says something that we should also be aware of. You know, who doesn't want a miracle performed for them? Like everybody wants a miracle performed for them. So the Gomorrah says something stunning. I mean, not only do people want a miracle performed for them, but a lot of people make that a test of, the, of their belief in God. Like, you know, if, if you perform a miracle for me, God, I'll believe in you. Or things like that. But anyway, listen to what the Gomorrah says. Something counterintuitive. That at a time a miracle is performed for a person, the person is unaware of it. <laughs> you would think that that would be the most dramatic moment when God performs a miracle for me. And the example that the Talmud gives, you know, back in the day, People traveled, and they traveled for business, and they traveled long distances for business. I'm talking about in ancient times. And the way that they often would make these long journeys was by boat. And boat, by the way, was a very perilous way to travel. And anyway, the Gomorrah records an example of two businessmen, and they're running to catch a boat, just like in today's Day and age, you know, you would imagine two people running to catch an airplane. And one of them's got an important business meeting. And he steps on a thorn and he's immobilized. He can't walk. He can't move. And he can't make his boat, right? His, his, his plane to Dallas has been, you know, he's going to miss it. He's going to miss the meeting. And he's imagining financial ruin in front of his face because he stepped on the thorn. And the Gomorrah goes on to report that the boat sinks and everyone dies. So at the time that the miracle was performed, the person didn't know it. And they give that as the example. Because we don't usually correlate pain and suffering with our lives being saved. And yet, as Reb Shlomo would say, what do we know? What do we know? What do we know? There was a period in time where I conditioned to myself when I'd get stuck in traffic and I'd know I'd be running late for an appointment and my blood was starting to boil in terms of frustration and just anger for not having left sooner or whatever it is. And then I'd say to myself, how do I know that God isn't saving my life right now? How do I know? And I'd feel better because it's true. And if you want to know just how far this goes, you know, unfortunately, God should protect us all. We shouldn't know from it. But you can have deadly car crashes in an intersection where someone's running a red light or whatever it is, and someone's going in one direction. And then in, in a perpendicular direction, there's a car that crashes right into the, the driver's side of the of the car and you know that person doesn't survive that car crash but you know something imagine with the speed that's a that a car is going 
maybe, and I'm making up this number, but just, just to give you an idea, what if that car that got hit and the driver died in this imaginary example, what if that car left a third of a second sooner and so it was just a few inches further when that other car plowed into the side of his car. Maybe the oncoming car would have hit the back seat and not the front seat and the driver would have been fine. The world is run with utter precision. Utter precision. So, so cultivating this level of love is what Elul is all about. And with that in mind, I want to I tell you a teaching from this week's Parsha that made a big impression on me from the Ma'or V'Shemesh. There's a turn of phrase in the first verse of, of Keats, which in English is, I, to my eyes and ears and brain, is almost impossible to understand. But I, I finally have some clarity on it, and I, I ran across a number of teachings explaining it. And once you know what it actually means, you see, wow, this is, this is an amazing thing. So I'll read you the whole first verse, but we're going to key on the last two words, okay? I'll read it in English, and then I'll tell you these last two words in Hebrew. When you will go out to war against your enemies, and Hashem your God will deliver him into your hand, and you will capture his captivity. Now what the heck does that mean? You will capture his captivity. And in Hebrew, it's Shavisa Shivya. Shivya. Okay, so you, you see there's a doubling of the word there. You will capture his captivity. Okay, so let me tell you what it means. Basically, there's two aspects to war that this verse is addressing. The first aspect is you want to defeat the enemy. The second aspect is whatever the enemy has of yours that they've taken from previous battles, you want returned back to you. That's what that second part means. They're two separate ideas. One, win the war. Number two, get my stuff back. That's, that's what that second part means. Okay, very good. So let me give you an example so it's super clear. The police team in ancient times used to have these ongoing wars against the Jewish people. And in one war, they actually took the Ark of the Covenant, the golden Ark with the tablets of the Covenant that we kept in the Holy of Holies. They, they took that, and they had that for a number of years. And finally, we were able to wage a successful war and, and get our stuff back. In other words, it wasn't just defeating them. We were actually able to get back what they took. Okay. So... Since all of these Parshas leading up to Rosh Hashanah are all talking about our preparing for Rosh Hashanah and the war that they're describing right now is the war against our own limitations, our own Yetzirahs, our own evil inclination. What are we trying to get back that the Yetzahara, the evil inclination, has taken from us? Remember, a, you want to defeat the enemy. B, you want to get back what was taken from you. So with that in mind, listen to what the Moor Vishemish says. He says, you know, it's possible to do mitzvahs, but to do them for your own agenda. And there's so many different agendas why a person would want to do mitzvahs. One to be called rabbi, another to get stuff from God, another to enhance their own reputation. 
right? To think of themselves as a good person. To, and all sorts of agendas. By the way, it's important to think of yourself as a good person, and doing mitzvahs is a very good way to get to that. So I don't know if, that, if I would put that in the same category. So let's take that one out. <laughs> but we have ulterior motives. Now, with that in mind, I want to tell you two of my favorite teachings. I heard this from Reb Shlomo in the name of the Yishpitzer Rebbe. The Meishaloch points out that, that if you look in the Torah, it says that the Kahanim, before they went into the Holy Temple, in order to do the heavenly service, they would wash their hands. And what the Ishbitzer says is that they would wash their hands of any ulterior motives. They would wash their hands before doing the divine service as an expression that I am not doing this for you, God, so that you should do the following for me. I'm just doing it for you because this is what you want. So I'm washing my hands of any ulterior motives before I go in and do this divine service. Very beautiful. Reb Shlomo kind of brings it home to us in terms of our own personal lives. When we wash our hands before eating bread, he says that one of the levels to have in mind is you're washing your hands of the notion that the bread that you're about to eat is coming from the work of your own hands. In other words, your hands, so to speak, the bread that I'm about to eat is coming because of all the work that I did. I did this. I'm feeding myself. So you wash your hands of that notion that the bread that you're about to eat came from the work of your hands. Unbelievable. Now with that in mind, I, I have to share with you just one of the all-time great gematrias from Rabbi Moshe Wolfsenschlitter, that nitilat yadayim, the last two words of the bracha that we make when we wash our hands, nitilat yadayim is gematria, lechem min, bread from heaven. And the Sephardim have a beautiful custom, which is when they cut the challah, they throw it across the table. They throw it to each person, meaning to say that each person is receiving the bread from heaven, from above, not from another person's hand. So washing our hands of the feeling that the power belongs to us, that the blessing is because of us, Washing our hands of ulterior motives. So now let's get back to what the Ma'or V'Shemesh says. What are we trying to recapture that the Yetzirah took from us? You ready for this? Our sincerity. Slowly, slowly, life is hard. Life breaks us down. Life gives us certain needs and certain times we, as our needs harden and become more extreme, it's human nature just to see all of our life experience through the tunnel of that particular need. And sometimes we're so reductive in terms of our relationship with God, where we boil down our entire relationship with God, either give me this thing, God, or I'm boycotting you, or our relationship is over. And meanwhile, we're, we're slowly, slowly losing sight of waking up in the morning and walking and blinking and, and eating and, and breathing and all the functioning of our organs and, and all the things that we're receiving in the most dramatic way we've decided belong to us and aren't blessings and aren't direct manifestations of God's involvement in our life out of love. And everything is just seed through this particular need and it's so tragic. It's so tragic. And by the way, I'm not underestimating the urgency of our needs. And I'm not saying that we don't have needs. And I pray to God that all of our needs should be answered and that we should be saved from any afflictions that we have. But we also have to experience within the greater context of everything else that's going on. 
and all the love that's also manifest. And the greatest tzaddikim, I don't know if we can be at this level, but let's at least be aware that this level exists and that many people do live by this level, experience suffering as soul cleansing and as a kindness from God. I know this is a very exalted level that I'm telling you right now, where they understand that God in his love and his mercy is scrubbing my, scrubbing my soul clean from a standpoint of love. And so it happens while we get through the meat grinder of life is we become more agenda-based in terms of our relationship with God. And the very thing that gave life to all of it to begin with was that sincere love and appreciation and thanks and yira sense of awe that there is a creator and that we do have a, a direct relationship with him. And so we read the idea of recapturing that which has been taken from us every year in the month of Elul. And again, the Ma'or Shemesh says so beautifully, what's been taken from us so often is our sincerity. That we have an opportunity right now to recapture our sincerity. So there's another thing that the Torah says in the beginning of the verse, where it says, when you go out to war against your enemies. Now, that's a very interesting phraseology, because what the rabbis learned from that is that our enemies, meaning to say our spiritual challenges, our deficiencies, are individually assigned to each one of us. That's why it says your enemies, meaning your personal enemies. So what God does for each one of us is he, so to speak, gifts us with deficiencies. And these are tailor-made for us in order for us to fix our souls. So one of the ways for a person to discover their mission in this world is to almost like reverse engineer from the standpoint of their own deficiencies. In other words, look at those things that you're lacking as a guidepost to those things that you should be excelling at. So I'll give you an example in my own life. My wife sometimes refers to me as the world's laziest workaholic, right? Like, I'm kind of a lazy guy. So what does that mean? To me, that means that God tells me that he made me lazy because he really wants me to accomplish a lot of things in life. And if a person just takes a moment just to contemplate, or a few moments to contemplate how are my deficiencies, heavenly pointers that I can excel in and contribute to the world and help complete the world. That's a very interesting bit of soul discovery and kind of mission discovery. And so I'll just sum up and Rabbi Nachman of Breslov says that whenever you learn some Torah, you have to turn it into a, a blessing. So I just want to say as a blessing for all of us, for me included, that we should know that the master of the universe is the one who loves us the most. And I'll just tell you one final thing, maybe the best thing. A classic, classic teaching that I learned from Reb Shlomo. I was there in his shul on 79th Street. And I heard this myself. You know, it wasn't recorded. It was Rosh Hashanah when he said it. He looked into a, a sefer from the Rishon Rebbe, one of the greatest of the Hasidic masters. And he kind of paused for a moment and he said, okay, I'm gonna say it over in my own words. 
And this is what he said. He said, imagine, and it's talking about the judgment of Rosh Hashanah. And this will sum up everything that I've said over since I started. Imagine you're on a subway in New York and you look across the subway car and you see a person and you're convinced, you know, that this is your soulmate. And it's kind of hard for you to approach them, you know. And at one point, the subway car stops and the doors open and that person rises and starts to get out. And you realize it's now or never. So you work up the courage and you walk up to the person and, and you get the first three digits of their seven-digit phone number. And then the doors close. You don't get the rest. Now, I don't know if you know it, but the first three digits of a seven-digit phone number tell you the neighborhood that the person lives in. So you recognize what neighborhood that is. Rav Shlomo, when he said it over, made a joke. He said he gave over the first three digits from Borough Park, right? He says you're driving in Borough Park and you're looking out the car window, seeing maybe, you know, maybe I'll spot that person like walking on the sidewalk or whatever it is. So you're driving, you're looking, you're looking, you're driving. And then all of a sudden you hear a police siren behind you. A police officer pulls you over and says, you know, you run one red light, you run two red lights, but three red lights, it's too much already, brother. I'm going to have to take you in to see the judge. So that's not great, right? So you go to the courthouse and you walk into the courtroom and who's the judge? The person from the subway that you've been looking for. And the judge looks at you and you look at the judge. And the judge says, I'm so happy to see you. There's time to judge you, but right now, just sit next to me, I wanna be close. So who is the one who's judging us? The one who loves us the most. And that's what Elul is all about, getting into that state of consciousness. And Reb Shlomo said in the name of the Ishbitzer Rebbe, what is the work of Elul? Fixing everything you're doing right. And that sounds counterintuitive. If I'm doing it right, what do I need to fix it for? And so Reb Shlomo says in the name of the Ishbitzer, that thing that you're already doing, are you doing it with all of your heart? And so that's the beginning of the process. If we want to awaken that love relationship with God, we take the things that we're already doing, that we're already doing, and we take an extra moment and we do those things with all of our heart. And you'll see the love will come alive. I'll give you just a small example. You have to make this personal and you have to apply this to yourself for it to be meaningful. But I just want to give you an example of one thing that I've been doing, thinking about this lately. You know, I'm washing my hands anyway, right? But am I always just taking an extra moment or two to make sure that the entire washing cup is full? It's just a more beautiful expression of the service. Again, this is just me personally just giving you a, a, a tiny application of what I'm talking about right now. I'm doing it anyway, but now I'm just trying to do it just a little more beautifully. And when I do that, I sense God's presence. I sense my connection with him and my service of him. And I feel his presence and the fact that that relationship is there. And so... So the love is already there. We just have to reawaken it. 
by seeing it and experiencing it. You should just be a great, a great El and a great beautiful year and a, and a great, a great new world which is forming right now and a great new us. Thanks for listening. We do this every week. So join in again next Sunday for a new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.